Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Merry Christmas. It's good to see you. Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. As you're finding that, um, listen, it's just a joy to gather with you like Praise God for being here. You know, I mean, I don't want to hand out, like, uh, attendance prizes, but come on now. <laughs> you, you young families that have prioritized gathering with God's people, just, I'm just encouraged. It, it, praise God. I'm, I'm really glad that you're here today. Uh, here's what I want to do is uh, we have the great privilege to remember the gospel this morning. Uh, so that's my plan is to just preach the good news of the gospel from this classic text that sometimes we kind of know, but we only read around Christmas time. So I want to I, I have us think about this text and then think about how this text really answers the whole question of the Bible. And then we're going to see the gospel represented before us in the water baptism on Christmas Day of a new member of Cross Point. And even though it's about 20 degrees outside, we have a heater, so the water's warm. I'm going to read Luke chapter 2, most of it, and uh, stop along the way, make comments, and then we're going to look at the message of the gospel, the good news of the gospel. But before I do that, let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, what a privilege to gather on this Sunday morning, the Lord's Day. Thank you for the beautiful songs that we have sung and the scriptures that we have heard read. Thank you for the, this church. Thank you for other churches that believe the same gospel that we do that are gathering around our city and around our nation, around the world. Lord, what a privilege to be free to worship. We know that we have brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who do not have the freedom to worship publicly as we do on the Lord's Day. Would you sustain them? Would you encourage them? Would you be their comfort on this Christmas morning? And Lord, as we look at this passage, at this classic text from Luke, Lord, would it, this familiar passage become fresh to us? And as we think about the good news of the gospel, would we savor afresh the good news of what you have done for your people through your son? And may we, as we see the gospel pictured before us through the water baptism of our dear brother, and as we greet one another and as we go on into the rest of our day to spend time with family, Lord, would you encourage us and cause us to worship you and love you more deeply. And if there are friends that are here today that do not know the Lord, what a gift it would be on this Christmas day for them to see for the first time, for you to give them faith and eyes to see and a heart to believe in Jesus. Lord, would you do that? Would you be glorified? And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's read in Luke chapter 2. Listen as I read this classic text on this Christmas morning. Luke chapter 2, verse 1, it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, 
to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was, the house, he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So if you were here last night when we were gathered for Christmas Eve, you would have heard that we read from Matthew and we read a little bit from the Old Testament where there is this wonderful truth that from this line, from this little tiny seemingly insignificant village, God would bring a Savior out of Bethlehem. And here we have God moving on the hearts of pagan governors to, to call for a, a, to call for this, 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 this census, which causes Joseph to go back to this town of Bethlehem to fulfill this prophetic word that God spoke through the prophet Micah hundreds of years before. And here we have God arranging human events for the display of his glory. Back to Luke chapter 2 and verse 6. And while they were there, there came time for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now think about it. If humans were writing a myth or a story about how the creator of all things would come into this world to save it, would they write it this way? in this humble way that the creator of the universe is not born in royal places, but in humble pastures in this inn where there was no room for him. Verse 8, and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. In verse 10, and the angel of the Lord said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. I want to draw your attention back to verses 10 and 11 of Luke 2 and read it again. And I want us to focus on this one phrase here in the middle of verse 10. And the angel said to them, to the shepherds gathered out in the field, the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you 
good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The announcement to the shepherds and the announcement to us today on this Christmas morning is that born to us is a Savior and that this is good news. Well, let's ask ourselves a few questions as we think about this text. Why is this good news needed? Why do we need a Savior? And why is it such good news that this baby is born here in this manger? And how will the birth of this child, who these angels are saying will be our Savior, how will this be? Why is this needed? Well, all the way back at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3, we read the account of why all of this is necessary. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, and everybody in this room is a descendant of Adam and Eve. We're given this charge to be God's stewards, and they disobeyed God, and they, they brought in sin, and the world, because of Adam and Eve's sin, was cursed. And this is what God says to the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And this is the first sort of shadow of the gospel that we see in the scriptures. God says this to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, or a, a conflict between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, meaning the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there's this, early on in the Bible, there's this, there's this dilemma, there's this problem that sin has entered in. Adam and Eve, our first parents, have fallen, and now everything that comes from this fountain of humanity has fallen along with them. In fact, in the New Testament, we get more of a description of what happened in that, on that fateful day in the garden. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, meaning our first father, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So what happened there in the garden is not only did Adam and Eve sin, but then from them came a great multitude called humanity, which are all sinners, who are by nature and by our own actions participating in sin with our first parents, Adam and Eve. And if any of us are so arrogant to think, well, well no, I'm, I'm actually a pretty good guy. Paul clears it up for us a little bit earlier in Romans when he says in chapter 3 and verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so why does this baby, why does this Christ child need to be born? Why is this good news? Why is this good news needed? Why is a Savior needed? Because of the dilemma of humankind that we are by nature sinners and have rebelled against God. In fact, the, the Old Testament, one of the, one of the high mark, one of the, one of the most glorious passages in all of the Bible in the Old Testament puts its finger on this problem that Christmas morning solves. And we'll go to Exodus chapter 34 to show you this this, this dilemma that is presented so clearly in Scripture. This is 
God speaking to Moses as he is leading God's people through the desert and he's leading people uh, and delivering them through their rebellion against him. And God is angry with the, the sin and the disobedience of God's people. And he's raised up this deliverer, Moses, and he speaks to Moses. And this is what he says to Moses about how he will deal with his people. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear, clear the guilty. So there's the dilemma in verse 7. How will God do this? He is a God who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, but he will by no means clear the guilty. And if we had more time, like about, I don't know, several months, to go through the rest of the Old Testament, we would see this dilemma unfold for us because here God tells Moses that he will forgive sin, but he will by no means clear the guilty. And the problem is, is that everybody in the Old Testament is guilty. So how is God going to deliver the guilty? How is he going to forgive the sinners when none of them deserve to be delivered? How will the people who cannot offer anything, who have nothing to appease the wrath and the punishment of the glory of God, how will this dilemma be solved? How will it be handled? How will the guilty be forgiven? Because everybody is guilty. And we start to see answers later on in the Old Testament. We start to see glimmers of hope and promises made about a better deliverer than Moses, about a better priest than the ones in the Old Testament, about a better king than David. This is what Isaiah says, speaking hundreds of years before Christ came, about what Christ would do. Isaiah 53, verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So do you see the puzzle is starting, the dilemma is starting to be solved. We get this shadow of how that verse in Exodus can be fulfilled. All of us, everyone, we've all turned to our own way. So how will he clear the guilty? Because we deserve his punishment. We are the guilty ones. How will he forgive us? And the answer, we get this glimmer of hope in Isaiah 53. Instead of laying on us, the punishment for our sins. There will be this one, this servant that will come, and he will lay on him the iniquity of us all. And then the Old Testament. In fact, this is the last verse of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, gives us a glimmer of hope about one that, will God, that God will raise up 
to prepare the way for this, for this servant to come, to prepare the way for the one on whom God will put this iniquity. And this is what Malachi says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. Now, Elijah the prophet had died already. So obviously he's speaking metaphorically about a new sort of a new Elijah. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So the Old Testament ends with nobody being able to satisfy the demands of God. All of us, just like our first parents, Adam and Eve, all of us deserving God's judgment. But this promise, this glimmer of hope that there is coming one who God will put the punishment on him instead of us. And this will be the answer to the dilemma of how God can forgive iniquity, but by no means clear the guilty. And here, this last verse of the Old Testament, we hear this call that there is coming one who will go before this one and he will prepare the way for this Savior to be born. And here we have that scripture fulfilled. What we just read in Malachi is fulfilled in Luke chapter 1. Let me read Luke chapter 1 about the birth of Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. Starting in verse 5, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel of the Lord said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And that baby becomes John the Baptist. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And listen to this. Listen to verses 16 and 17. They are an echo of what we just read in the last verse of the Old Testament, promising this new prophet like Elijah, who becomes John the Baptist, and verses 16 and 17 are a fulfillment of the promise that God made of this forerunner at the end of Malachi. Here's what it says. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so we start to see the promise that has been made in the Old Testament is starting to be fulfilled. And now John goes before Jesus and the rest of the Gospels explain the ministry of John the Baptist going before the people, before Jesus saying, repent and believe, repent and believe in the one who is coming and it's Jesus. And that brings us to Luke chapter 2 in our text now. 
and with greater clarity, we can understand why verses 10 and 11 of Luke chapter 2 are needed. Let's read it again. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Why do we need this Savior? Why is it such good news? Because God is answering the dilemma that we could not solve, that He will not let go of sin. He will judge sin, but He will judge it on Christ, the Son who has come to bear the iniquity of His people. And the rest of the Bible explains now this promise that God has made through His Son, Jesus. Romans chapter 5 says this, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So now the answer to Roman, to Exodus chapter 34, that dilemma is answered. Now we are justified not by our works, which have got us only judgment, but we're justified by faith in the one who has perfectly obeyed for us. And as a consequence of that, We have peace. We are reconciled with God through this Lord Jesus. Verse 2, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Listen to verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's the good news of the gospel. That this Christ child came, God the Son, God in the flesh, died not for the relatively good, not for religious people, not for people who were making themselves better than others. Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, do you see how verse 8 answers the dilemma of the Old Testament? How will God clear the guilty, but how will he punish sin? He will clear the guilty by punishing Christ in our place. Not when we make ourselves savable, but while we were still sinners, dead in our sins, Christ died for us. Since therefore you have we have now been justified by his blood back to Romans chapter 5 much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life more than that we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. And all of this concludes Paul at the height of his argument in Romans, in Romans chapter 8, to conclude this, that there is therefore 
Now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so when you're starting your Bible reading plan this January and you get to Exodus chapter 34 and it says that God will forgive iniquity and transgression and sin, but he will by no means clear the guilty. How will this dilemma be answered? How will he forgive people but not clear the guilty when everybody is guilty? Romans chapter 8 verse 1 answers that. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because those who are in Christ Jesus have had their guilt satisfied by Jesus. And it's not only the forgiveness of sins. This is where the good news gets even gooder. But it's the promise of God then using all of our life for his glory and our good, even the bad things and the hard things and the horrible things, and promises our eternity with him, which will be ever-increasing joy forever. Listen to how Paul concludes in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. So not only is just there therefore no, no condemnation, this is where the good news of Luke chapter 2, verse 10, just magnifies in our hearts. Not only are our sins forgiven, but now our present reality is we still suffer through this remaining life and all of its difficulties. Paul says that all of this has a purpose. Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. In other words, everything that you're facing, every remaining difficulty, every remaining fight with sin, everything that you are enduring now, the sins that you are still struggling with, the sins of others that are still damaging you, all of it is somehow working together for your good. So the good news is not just this one-time reconciliation and forgiveness of sins, but the promise that now God is working all things for your present and eternal good. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So the good news of this baby coming is not just merely that your sins will be forgiven, but that you will live with him forever and that everything that you are currently going through after your salvation serves for your good and the glory of God. And then there's coming a day when this little baby that comes to us in swaddling cloths and such humility grows up as an obedient man, truly man, truly God, laying down a sacrifice on the cross to absorb the wrath of God and rising victoriously over sin, death, and the grave because he's not just a man, but he's fully God. And he promises to not just come once as a baby, but to return again as the king of kings. He came first as a lamb and returns as a lion. And when he does, here's where the good news gets even better. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, this is just his first advent, his first coming in Luke chapter 2. He's coming again, and what will he do when he comes again? He will, verse 21, transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now, I don't want to make all of you mad at me because I could spend some time on verse 21 and your 
Christmas ham would be burnt in the oven. But let's just say that something is going on when Jesus returns. And we aren't just, you know, we don't just kind of, we, we get transformed. There's this glorious resurrection when those who are dead in Christ are raised. And their spirits are reunited with their glorified bodies. And those who are still alive when Jesus comes back that are in Christ are transformed in the twinkling of an eye. And I don't know what it looks like. It is beyond what we have seen or heard, beyond what we can even imagine. But we will be like Jesus forever. <laughs> and then this is the end, Revelation 21. And this is what we get to experience in ever-increasing joy because of Luke chapter 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. This is John the Apostle with his vision of what eternity will be like. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And we can speculate on this. And I don't think I'm going outside of scriptural truth. That because God is infinitely glorious and joyful, that our experience of him in eternity will not be static. It won't be a flat line. So this, this is where the good news, what's, what's after gooder? It gets the goodest, the goodest of all. Our eternity with the Lord, your future, Christian, is this. Your future is this. This is the good news. This is the summation of the good news. Our experience of salvation and glorification is not just static. It's not, oh, we make it to heaven. Our sins are forgiven. Now what are we going to do? Play harps on clouds for the rest of the time? And just No. We're going to be like Jesus. What a, what a thought that is. And because God is infinitely glorious and good, and there's no, there's no quantifying that, there's no limit of that, our experience of him will not be static, flatlined. It will, moment after moment, or whatever time looks in heaven, be always and ever more increasing forever and ever and ever. <laughs> Glory. To God in the highest. That's the good news of this baby in swaddling cloths to come for us. Let's pray. Lord, may we, uh, out of tradition or sentimentality, avoid the mistake. May we not fall into the trap of making the gospel cute. How glorious this good news. How wonderful this Savior.
how necessary this Christmas morning. How wonderful is this announcement that you bring to us this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And in him is good news of great joy that will be for all who trust in him. Lord, we love you. We want to know this and live from this more confidently and passionately. And for any in this room who came in not believing, Lord, would you open up their eyes? Would you give them the faith that you require of them? Would you give them the new heart that would enable them to believe this? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.